Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. We're continuing our series today, uh, A God When I Feel Like a, a Nobody. Uh, and this is a part of our series called Real Authentic Worship, where the psalmists are just incredibly open and honest uh, with God about what's going on in their hearts. It's easy to feel insignificant in the world today. Some of you have driven across Canada, northern parts of Canada, uh, not northern Canada, but northern parts of some of our provinces. I remember last year we went up to northern Saskatchewan. I'm assuming there's some of this in Alberta, but northern Saskatchewan is just full of canola fields, and they're absolutely stunning, and it's just yellow as far as the eye can see. And if I were to take you to one of those canola fields, and we'd walk out 15 or 20 yards into the sea of yellow, and I were to grab one little golden flower off of one of the strands of canola flowers, and say, isn't this beautiful? Some of you would respond, there's nothing special about that. There are billions and billions of them. And that's how we often feel when we think of ourselves in this world. How can I be special? How can I be unique when I am one of eight billion people on the planet? As I was writing this, the world population clock, which you can see if you just Google it, world population clock, our best estimates of how many people inhabit the planet, was hitting 7,970,174,650. In 2022, at that point, there were 91,176,880 births. And when you watch that clock, you can see the births going up many per second. So 91 million births, there were only 38,278,276 deaths. So we got more than twice as many births as deaths. My, in my mind, in many of our minds, God has got to be falling behind, right? How does he keep track of 8 billion people, 8 billion lives? He must look back at the Garden of Eden with fondness. You know, and in the, in the sort of the society of the Trinity, I imagine they're thinking and talking to each other. Remember when we were three on two? You know, we like had a, a, a trapping defense. There were three in the Trinity and there were two people on the planet. We had it made. Now you've got three members of the Trinity and eight billion people. God's got to be in some trouble, wouldn't you think? Plus, he has to manage the whole of creation. Colossians 3 says that by him, the person of Jesus Christ who participated in creation, by him all things are held together. It's a very interesting statement because it's a technical statement about the universe. By him, all things are held together. Physicists, astrophysicists talk about the God particle. There are are many things that they don't understand about how the universe works. But that's got to be tough for God if the universe is expanding, as many say it is. It's hard to keep a grip on all of that. It's easy to feel insignificant in that universe. The general opinion of astrophysicists 
is that the universe is 13.7 billion years old based on the Big Bang Theory, which I'm gonna talk about in a second, is actually in some significant trouble. Now, I don't think you're gonna see that reflected in schools for 50 years, but astrophysicists are starting to doubt it big time. So the Big Bang Theory says that 13.7 billion years ago, you know, it all started and it, it was this great explosion and the rates of expansion from one original point to where we believe the universe is uh, would mean that uh, it's almost 14 billion years old because of the outer limits. Some argue that light reaching us today would have started 17.3 or 13.7 billion years ago, but that because of the constant expansion, the galaxies that gave that light are now 78 billion light years away, or because they go in both directions from us, some suggest the universe may be 156 billion light years across. These aren't miles or kilometers, these are light years. 156 billion light years across, and some suggest that there are multiple universes. Our little galaxy, the Milky Way, what a great name for a candy bar and a galaxy. The Milky Way has 200 to 400 billion stars or suns within it. That's one little galaxy. So the known universe has billions of galaxies, each with billions of stars across potentially 156 billion light years, and we don't know that that's all there is. The Big Bang is now being attacked. Not by Christians, not by people have a different view of creation, it's being attacked by astrophysicists. They say there's incredible weaknesses in the Big Bang Theory. And again, I, I think because the Big Bang Theory is often sort of a way to explain the world without God, it's not going to make it into public school textbooks for a long time. But astrophysicists are now saying there's some real holes in the Big Bang Theory. And they're scratching their heads trying to figure out how to remake it. It's easy to feel insignificant in that universe. Philip Yancey writes about this. He says, if the Milky Way galaxy, that's the galaxy we live in, were the size of the entire continent of North America, that's a lot of land, all of North America, our solar system, the Milky Way, would fit in a coffee cup in North America. Coffee cup. Even now, two Voyager spacecraft are hurtling towards the edge of our solar system, the Milky Way, at a rate of 100,000 miles an hour, for almost three decades, now this is an old story, I'm guessing it's more like 40 years now, they've been speeding away from Earth, approaching a distance of nine billion miles. When engineers beam a command to that spacecraft at the speed of light, it takes 13 hours to arrive at the speed of light, yet this vast neighborhood of our sun, in truth the size of a coffee cup, fits along with several hundred billion other stars and their minions in the Milky Way, one of perhaps 100 billion such galaxies in the universe, our whole galaxy, not our solar system, the size of a coffee cup in North America. So the question is, when we understand the breadth of all that exists, why on earth would you and I think that we matter at all? Well, Psalm 139 answers that. I want you to turn to Psalm 139. In the Bible in front of you, it should be on page 452. Psalm 139, page 452. It's actually part of this psalm is one of, you know, one of our favorite psalms. There's a passage in it you're going to recognize. It's going to be very familiar. 
Psalm 139, page 452, as you can see, the, uh, the, the, as they put the psalm together, as they, as they gave it to us, they gave it a title, which is not in the original here, but God's omnipresence and omniscience, God being everywhere present and knowing everything. For the choir director, a psalm of David. Oh Lord, sorry about that. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before you laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Uh, If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Now this psalm basically has four key transitions, four key points. The last one seems a little abrupt, doesn't it? We're talking about how great God is and then all of a sudden he's talking about how he hates God's enemies. It's very interesting. And there's a reason for that. But we're going to focus on the first three primarily. First, he knows me inside and out. In fact, some have entitled this psalm, they would say the real subject of the psalm is Yahweh knows me, or the Lord knows me. It truly counters the notion I was posing a few moments ago that God's nature is somehow deluded by the expanse of the human family and the expanse of the universe. We, we look at the vastness of everything because we're finite creatures. We think, well, that's got to stretch God. This counters that notion. God is not deluded by anything at all. He's infinite. And the claims here are actually quite stunning. David, a couple of words I want to explain. First, he uses the word the Lord. It's the dominant word in the psalm for God. Again, remember, when we go from Hebrew to English, we lose a little bit in the names for God. When you see the word the Lord with all capitals, L-O-R-D, all caps, that is the Hebrew Yahweh, four consonants, Y-H-W-H. And then when they added vowel points later and Latinized it, it was Jehovah. So Lord, Yahweh, and Jehovah are all the same name. 
It's the name that God revealed to Israel that would stand for his self-existence. It's the is verb, the to be verb in Hebrew. It's like I am the self-existent God who's making these promises to Israel that I will keep. I'm the covenant-keeping God. And David is appealing to that. So that God who made the promises to our people, that God knows me. The Hebrew word to know is very interesting. You know, there are many words in both Hebrew and Greek, just like we have many words in English for these kinds of concepts. But in, in this case, it, it's when you have the Hebrew translated into Greek, not to English, but to Greek. So during a period of history, people wanted the Old Testament in Greek when that was the dominant language in the world. And they call that the Septuagint. And when the Hebrew was translated into Greek, that word became gnosko. It's the same word you have in Genesis 4.1. Adam knew Eve. And she conceived. There's a sense of intimacy in this word. And David is saying, God, you know me intimately. You know everything about me. Listen to these descriptive words. You've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I get up. You understand my thoughts from afar, what I'm thinking. You scrutinize my path, my lying down. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, Lord, you know it all. In other words, you know our thoughts. You've enclosed me behind and before. You've laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I, I can't attain it. Two phrases really catch my attention from this that I still find kind of hard to believe. You understand my thought from afar, and before there's a word on my tongue, you know it all. That's really fascinating when we think of God's knowledge expanding to the point where he knows what goes on in our heads. It's also a little scary for some of us. It's fascinating because this is actually something that developed throughout Old Testament history and their understanding of who God was. In fact, let me tell you a little story that hopefully you'll remember. Remember when, when there was a woman named Hannah, okay? So go back to, in your heads to the book of 1 Samuel. At the beginning of that book, there's a woman named Hannah, and she didn't have any kids, and she was in the temple praying. Remember that story? Or, or she's at the tabernacle praying that God would give her a child. And she's praying but she's not saying anything out loud. All right, now that doesn't sound like a big deal to us because we pray silently, we don't think anything of it. But in Old Testament history, people didn't pray silently. They prayed out loud. The thinking is if we pray out loud, then God can hear us. That's the first time that I'm aware of in the scriptures where anyone is praying silently. In fact, when the priest saw her praying silently, he said, lady, you're drunk, get out of here, basically. Because she's in church drunk in his mind. She's praying silently, and it's the first example we have in scriptures of a belief that God actually knows what we're thinking, not just what we're saying. She's the first example of a silent prayer, and that idea continues to expand. Now, her baby that she was given in answer to that prayer was Samuel the prophet. Samuel the prophet is the prophet who anointed David to be king. So we're within two generations of when David wrote this psalm. And David talks about it, how God knows our very thoughts. It was always true. Hannah sort of broke it for us. And David talks about it. You understand my thought from afar before there's a word on my tongue. You know it all. God is omniscient. 
He's omniscient. He, two Latin words, omnis, all science, actually, scientia, knowledge, all knowledge, all science. God is omniscient. He knows all things past, present, and future. He knows all things actual, possible, potential. He has no limits. David finds that comforting. We should too. Now what's interesting about this is atheists actually attribute this to sort of, sort of a nightmare. They call this sort of the ultimate nightmare. In fact, I believe it's Christopher Dawkins who writes about this. Like, why on earth would Christians be excited about the fact that God knows everything we do? It seems pretty oppressive. Well, let me illustrate that. What they're thinking and maybe why that shouldn't bother us. I remember just over 20 years ago, and we're coming up to another anniversary of it, September 11, 2001, when the Twin Towers in New York City were attacked by terrorists. And I remember where I was when I heard about it, and we went back to church I was pastoring, turned on the TVs and watched it, and jetliners have been hijacked and run into the World Trade Center in New York City. That spawned the war in Afghanistan. That spawned, uh, I'm not asking you to agree with all this, I realize I'm an American here in Canada, so I get that. But that spawned what in the US was sort of a war without borders. It was sort of the Bush doctrine that if you have terrorists in your land, we're coming after them with or without your permission. So you're either with us or you're against us. That spawned the fear of homeland terrorists, that we no longer would be fighting nations, we would be fighting people that are not bound by geography. That spawned data mining of American citizens, something that's still not well known. Public communications were now being mined by big companies. And so the government sort of got in cahoots with Verizon and AT&T and Google and Amazon and all these big tech companies were sort of a part of the government's tools to monitor the privacy of Americans. And the NSA, which is the National Security Association, was sort of weaponized against the American people. Both Republican and Democratic presidents continued these policies for a long time. Rod Dreyer writes about this. He says, we've seen a wave of news stories about the NSA data collection program, but here's a preachable story about a facility called the Utah Data Center, not that far away, that the NSA built in the Utah desert. The heavily fortified $2 billion center should be up and running in September of 2013. Flowing through its servers and routers and stored in near bottomless databases will be all forms of communication, including the complete contents of private emails, cell phone calls, Google searches, as well as all sorts of personal data trails, parking receipts, travel itineraries, bookstore purchases, and other digital pocket litter. Welcome to America after 9-11. Some of you are very aware of this, some of you didn't know about this. Big tech was involved in this. A man named Edward Snowden, familiar with Snowden? There's a great movie on Netflix about him. A man named Edward Snowden blew the whistle on the NSA. He is now in the US branded as a traitor and he actually is in asylum in, of all places, Russia. And as an American, I actually think he's an American hero. The government views him as a traitor. See, if you're a person who is against the idea of an all-knowing God, that's sort of what God is like. 
You can view God as the ultimate sort of Google Earth GPS tracking system, sort of a a big brother nightmare. God is watching you. And many times this is what we're taught as kids. You know, don't be naughty. God is watching you. And it's true. You can view it that way or you can view it the way David intended. In a world of eight billion people, and a universe of perhaps 156 billion light years across, your creator knows everything going on in every inch, every dying star, every black hole, every changing gravitational impulse across 156 billion light years and localized on earth, every living cell of every living thing is in his view all at once, which means all of your fears, all of your dreams, all of your needs for all of your days are known by a God who has your best interests in mind. I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll take that, God. That's what David is talking about. Not big brother, but a God who intimately tracks your life every moment of every day. Second, he sees me coming and going. There's a natural connection between there's a natural connection between God's omniscience, the fact that God knows everything, and God's omnipresence, that he's everywhere present. In fact, I think in some ways you kind of need one to have the other. How can God know everything unless he's everywhere present, vice versa? God is not confined to a physical body. Now this gets a little complicated because I think we all, we get a little confused because Jesus, we know, is a localized person. He was as he walked this earth. There's a localized presence of Jesus in the incarnation. Also, we would say, when when we think of heaven, many of us think of God's throne room and think of some visible manifestation or presence of the Father. And I don't think those things are wrong, but that's not all that God is. So God may be localized in some of his manifestations, yet he's everywhere present. And the more you talk about it, sooner or later you're going to say something heretical, so I'm just going to stop. It's almost impossible to comprehend. God is localized, yet he's everywhere present. David says it this way, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the pit or Old Testament concept of hell or Hades, you're there. If I take my wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say surely the darkness will overwhelm me, the light around me will be night, even darkness is not dark to you, the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. We're never alone. God's knowledge is based on God's presence. Every part of the universe, 156 billion light years across, is known simultaneously at once by God. He doesn't have to study it. He doesn't have to cram for it. He doesn't have to memorize it. He sees all of it at once continuously. The population increase is not a strain for God. I think a lot of times we feel God is smaller than this. That's not new. In fact, this psalm might be meant to counter some of these wrong, uh, sort of wrong religious views. In David's day, it wasn't unusual that people would believe that Yahweh, the God that he mentions here, is the God of heaven, 
but he might not be governing everything on earth. In fact, who did Israel go to often to deal with local sort of uh, droughts and food issues? They'd worship the Baal gods, and they would sacrifice to Baal. They would do all sorts of inappropriate things in relationship to that. Baal was a cult that combined the worship of God and sexuality, popular religion. But this psalm sort of addresses it, that Yahweh is everywhere. The same God that helped them win their wars, the God of the heavens, is the God of the land as well. He's everywhere. You know, I think we all sort of limit God's relevance and presence. Like, God's okay for certain things in my life, but not all, and we make him small. There's a couple that had two little boys, ages eight and 10. They were a little mischievous. They're always getting into trouble. Their parents knew if any mischief occurred in their town, small town, their sons were probably involved in it. The boy's mother heard that a a pastor, a clergyman in town, had been successful in disciplining children. So she asked if he would speak with her boys. Yeah, that's great. Dump it on the pastor. I'm not doing that for you. The clergyman agreed but asked to see them individually, not together. So the mother sent her eight-year-old in to see the pastor the following morning, intending to send the older boy in the afternoon. The clergyman, a huge man with a booming voice, sat the younger boy down and sternly asked, where is God? The boy's mouth dropped open. He made no response. The clergyman repeated the question in an even sterner tone. Where is God? His point being, God is watching you. He's everywhere. Where is God? Again, the boy made no attempt to answer. The clergyman got to his feet, shaking his finger in the little boy's face. He bellowed, where is God? The boy screamed and bolted from the room. He ran home and dove into his closet, slamming the door behind him. This is not a true story. When his older brother found him a few minutes later, he said, what happened? The younger brother, gasping for breath, said, we're in big trouble this time, dude. God is missing, and they think we did it. (laughs) Sometimes we have the wrong view of God. We make him small. That boy made him small, thinking that somehow we could capture God and hide him. We do the same thing. We make God small. And when we make God small and limit his nature, we make him vulnerable. And then we have less faith in him. Because why would we have confidence or trust in that God? He sees me coming and going. He's everywhere. And third, he's my master designer and life planner. This is one of the most loved passages in the Psalms, this specific part of it, it speaks to God's activity in everyone's formation from conception. It speaks to our formation in an imperfect world. David wrote this. This isn't written in a perfect world. This isn't written before Genesis chapter 3 takes place. He wrote it in a fallen, broken world where we already are imperfect people. Our daily bread of this story. You ever notice the pock marks, the dimples covering the surface of a golf ball? They make the ball look imperfect. So what's their purpose? An aeronautical engineer who designs golf balls said that a perfectly smooth ball would travel only 130 yards from a tee. But the same ball with the right kind of dimples will fly twice that far or more. These apparent flaws man- minimize the ball's air resistance and allow it to travel much further. Most of us can quickly name the physical characteristics we wish we'd been born without. 
It's difficult to imagine that these imperfections are there for a purpose and are part of God's master design. Yet when the psalmist wrote of God's creative marvel in the womb, he said to the Lord, you formed my inward parts, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and then he said, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. With that in mind, psalmist says in verse 13, you've, you've known me, you see me coming and going. You formed my inward parts. You've always been there. You made me. You wove me in my mother's womb. In other words, this knowledge isn't new. It's not just you get to know me now and you're everywhere present. You've always been a part of it from conception. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. God's always been there. It's been a part of every moment of every human life. And more importantly for what we're talking about here, you are who God intended you to be in his image. He sees your whole life. His thoughts have always been on you. He gives meaning to every moment of your life because of that. No moment has been lived without God. Purpose is born because of that. Value is raised infinitely because of that. You should never feel like you don't matter. Nobody in this world, even in a broken body wrapped by whatever, should ever feel that they are a nobody because they contain the image and likeness of God. You could not matter more. And that value is not based on what you accomplish or what you have or own in this life. It's just based on who you are in the creative imagination of an all-powerful God. All that attention for every human, those who know God and those who do not, and then the cross as well once we messed it up. God's attention has always been there. He's my master designer and life planner. Well, let's look at a few apps here. First, God is not deluded by the scope of the job. Eight billion people, 156 billion light years across the universe, no problem. Do you know in about the, uh, the year 1500, 1507, just before I was born, uh, sort of medieval cartographers or map makers would, would draw maps of what they knew to be the known world. Again, that's the era of explorers going around the world from Europe, etc., trying to figure out and map the world from a Western standpoint. And when they would get to parts of the globe they didn't understand, you know what they would write? Hixon dragons means there be dragons on the edges of the map. Those three words were used by medieval cartographers uh, like the famed Lenox Globe, on the famed Lenox Globe, to describe the outer boundaries where knowledge ended and speculation began. So the secular map makers would say, this is everything we know, you can see the land masses, oceans, and then there be dragons. We don't know. Probably evil exists beyond that. They were wrong. God is at the end of every part 
of the universe. God's presence is there. God is not deluded by the scope of the job, which means he also isn't deluded by the eight billion people on the planet. Listen to this story, I love this story. Only 12 years old, and in a moment, one Ethiopian girl's world turned into a nightmare. Seven violent men abducted this preteen, intending to force her into marriage. The men held the girl for seven days, beating her repeatedly. Such incidents are common in Ethiopia. Several men band together to abduct young girls for the purpose of securing a bride. The girls are typically beaten into submission and raped. In this particular instance, there was not a human being within earshot to hear the cries of this girl, but her cries were heard. The unlikely heroes were three majestic Ethiopian lions. Famous for their large black manes, these lions are the national symbol of the country. In response to the girl's cries for help, three large lions leaped from the brush and chased these young men away. Go lions. Perhaps the child thought she'd traded one danger for another, but remarkably, her heroes formed a protective perimeter around her. And a half day later, when the police arrived, the guardian lions stood up and walked away. Sergeant Wandimo Wadajo said, they stood guard until we found her, and then they just left her like a gift and went back in the forest. That's just a great story of how God's reach is everywhere. And God can use whatever he wants to take care of any part of his creation he so chooses. God is not deluded by the scope of the job. Second, life matters. The two most pro-life passages I know of are Genesis chapter 1, which outlines why life matters, and that is that we are created in the image and likeness of God. And Psalm 139, this passage because it talks about how God views us from the point we are conceived. Now I realize that in the world of Christianity, it is becoming increasingly unpopular to be pro-life, and I do not understand it. Skip the politics of it and just talk about the Bible and how God views life. I don't think there's any pragmatic argument even though I'm sympathetic to a lot of issues, there's no pragmatic argument that trumps the idea that human life is created in the image of God and it should be protected and valued. It has greater value than anything else in creation. There's a lot of misunderstanding even about what's going on in the U.S. right now. The U.S., much like Canada, is a federalist society to some degree. There's dual sovereignty where the federal government and sort of the states or provinces both have laws that govern the same territories. What just happened in the U.S. is the Supreme Court basically said this should be back on the states and not on the federal government. You don't have to agree with that, but that's what happened. Nobody made abortion illegal. They just said it's up to the states. It would be like Canada saying it's up to the provinces. That's the way the U.S. is constructed. That's our constitution. That's why we had a war over slavery, because states said they get to decide that. The government said, no, you don't. And we had a war over it. Lost thousands and thousands of people over it. All nations should value life. We are not creating a theocracy which is an argument I've heard from Canadian Christians. We're not creating a theocracy by having moral standards in a society, no matter how secular we are. 
It's not a theocracy. It's us deciding as a people what right and wrong will be. Whether we protect the mentally handicapped or as is now the, the trend in Canada to allow mentally handicapped people to decide to have doctor-assisted suicide. We need to protect the elderly. No matter what it costs a society, we should care for the elderly. We need to protect the unborn. It's not a political statement. It is an ethical moral. Life matters. Third, you are as you were intended. You are as you were intended. Sorry. The great commandment says that we are to love God and love our neighbor as ourself. What's interesting about that is it shows us that God is not against us sort of liking ourselves or loving ourselves. And I know that sounds like narcissism and pride, but it really isn't. God understands that we have a natural sort of inborn, inbred desire to protect ourselves because we're made in the image of God and we see ourselves that way. So I don't want to say like self-love is okay, like you're a narcissist, you think you're great. But I do want to say this. Sometimes Christians get a little too sort of bent on the idea that if anyone likes themselves, it must be some sort of pride. You know what I'm saying? Sort of like we're all bad. We're not. So I hope when you go to the mirror in the morning that you don't have this sense of, oh, that's just all awful. No, you're a created in the image of God. You are as you were intended. When you look in the mirror in the morning, if you like what you see, that's not a bad thing. You know? Because God made you who you are. Self-acceptance is biblical. Self-love is biblical. It's not arrogance. No. That's because we believe who we are is created by God, that we're God's design. Pride comes in when we don't see God as a part of that process at all, that we see ourselves as our own creators and we're responsible for us. But you are as you were intended. And finally, David says, how could I not follow that God? Now he says this in a little unique way, I must admit. I get to the end of this psalm and I'm thinking, where is he coming from? Because I really loved everything he said on the first three quarters of the psalm. And then he says, Lord, would you just slay the wicked? You know, after all this really positive stuff about God's intimacy and knowledge of us, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? In a sense, what I want you to recognize is David is just identifying with God in this and God's kingdom and God's purposes. And he's saying, how could I not follow that God? David was committed to a God who knew everything about him, a God who was always with him, a God who made him, and a God who had a life plan for him. Are you? God knows every detail about every moment of your life. To David, that was enough to say, man, I want to be connected to that God. 
And I hope it is for you as well. To us, it simply means being Christians, following Jesus, committing our lives to him, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that what he did on the cross paid the penalty for our sins, and inviting him into our lives as Son of God, Savior, and Lord. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God that is not stretched, is not tired by the expanse of the universe or eight billion people in it. You are an omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful God. And because of that, we know that you want to be intimately involved in each moment of our lives. Thank you for that. May we have faith in that. May that give us reassurance as we walk through our lives with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again and God bless you.